You may have heard the theory that if you had an infinitely large room and you filled that room with infinite monkeys typing on infinite typewriters, one of them would eventually write Hamlet. It's one of those fun thought experiments that's technically true but also impossible to prove, so who gives a shit? It's just a fun thing to ponder. Well, just like those infinite monkeys playing with infinite typewriters, if this podcast continues long enough, we will eventually cover Braveheart. But nothing in life is ever guaranteed. I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. I could also win the lottery and make this podcast my full-time job, but the bus thing is more likely. So while at some point I may get to go on the record later with a more in-depth analysis, I wanted to take this opportunity to say that I've always liked Braveheart. When I first watched it in 1995, I loved it. I saw it in a rundown, old, but sold-out movie theater with no air conditioning in the middle of an August heat wave. Ten minutes in, nobody noticed that it was probably 100 degrees in there or that the whole room smelled like the armpit of humanity. We were packed in, ass to elbows, dripping all over each other, 70-plus people melting together, and none of us cared. By the end, you couldn't tell the sweat from the tears. It was riveting. And nobody had a bad word to say about it back then. It would be years before I heard history majors complaining about the missing bridge at the Battle of Sterling. And even more years before people started pointing out that Scots didn't wear kilts at that time. And years beyond that before we found out what a dumpster fire made flesh Mel Gibson is. In 1995, we all just loved it. Fast forward 20 years, and you'd be hard-pressed to find a Best Picture winner that had a harder fall from grace. It's a punchline among scholars, history nerds, and cinephiles alike. It's anathema to the very concept of period accuracy, a mistake to be corrected in part by today's film. Robert the Bruce is a giant figure in Scotland's history, and his depiction in Mel Gibson's aforementioned movie really doesn't do him justice. His is a story that's very much deserving of the full Hollywood treatment, and you could tell it without much embellishment and still have a rollicking good yarn. His fraught and highly contentious journey to the throne and his fight for independence from England is the stuff of Golden Age epics. But we aren't in the Golden Age for Hollywood epics anymore. And Netflix isn't exactly the studio that you go to if you want to make an epic in the classic style. They're all about getting subscribers and driving engagement, and you gotta tempt the audience with slick camera work and teasing shots of Chris Pine's wood. Pine? Wood? It's a cheap dick joke. They can't all be winners. Anyway, so is this film up to the task of correcting the cinematic sins of the past? And does it have enough of an identity itself to stand alone, irrespective of the other film, that got the world interested in Scotland's history in the first place? War is hell. People make films about it. And we love to talk about them. So come settle this war in single combat like honorable men, even though you may have just face-stabbed your rival to death in the middle of a church when you went there to ask for his help, with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director. As we discuss 2018's take on a medieval war epic starring Chris Pine, Florence Pugh, Stannis Baratheon, the old Scottish guy who plays the old Scottish guy in every movie with an old Scottish guy, and Chris Pine's Wood. From director David McKenzie, Outlaw King.
Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. Today we are here to talk about Outlaw King, also Outlaw Slash King in some posters I saw, which I want to talk about. This is from 2018. It was uh, on Netflix, so it should still be easy for everyone to access. My name is Dan, and I'm here as usual with my partners. Katie. And Liam. And Katie is going to start us off with our mission briefing. Robert the Bruce is a larger-than-life historical figure, one whose actions had such great effect he is remembered for them both good and bad. This may be why there are only a few films out there that focus on his story. He's a passing side character in Braveheart, just as William Wallace is much mentioned in The Outlaw King. After releasing the Oscar-nominated Hell or High Water, which starred Chris Pine, incidentally, director and contributing screenwriter David McKenzie was given a $90 million chance by Netflix to tell Bruce's tale in all its brutal glory. The film was hotly anticipated and managed to score the opening spot at the Toronto International Film Festival. Unfortunately, it did not live up to most people's expectations and was criticized for being overly long with too many battles. Although that version was two and a half hours, whereas the released version had half an hour cut. However, it did have its admirers who enjoyed the period accuracy and at least an attempt to stick to the historical facts. Both sides appreciated the performances of Chris Pine and Florence Pugh. Though Barry Aykroyd was the cinematographer for this, and we've seen his work before in The Wind That Shakes the Barley. Oh. But for this film, he chose a much more obvious style of cinematography than we saw in that one. There's lots of flashy shots and even a beautiful one-shot sequence to start the film out. I know that my experience with the film was pretty affected by how he chose to shoot this. So I wanted to start us off with what's everybody's thoughts on the cinematography and maybe a little idea on how that might have affected you. Dan? Well, so I'm going to put a slight spin on your question. I actually found that the cinematography didn't really affect my viewing of the film that much. But the material in the film and me paying attention to the plot and characters and the history actually sucked me in enough that the cinematography... It's not that I ignored the cinematography, but nothing jumped out at me that I needed to pay attention to or be distracted by for good or bad. I certainly noticed the pretty scenes. There's lots of sunset shots with lens flare, etc. that at some points were a little cliche, but they were really well done and really beautiful. And I think learning about the background of this film, which we'll talk about, and the fact that like all of it is filmed in Scotland, including a couple of famous historical locations. So I don't know. I, I think where the production went in their efforts allowed me to really not think critically about the cinematography because I thought that I really liked kind of what they did with the visuals, if that makes sense. The nine minute onesie, as I like to call it, the one or at the beginning, the romper is something that I would like to bring up, but let me shut up and let Liam give his opinion. Cause I think you guys will have a more interesting point, but I do want to talk about that. I think I would have loved this cinematography in another movie or perhaps in like three other movies. And cinematography is so weird and hard and nuanced, and it is a it's a very very delicate balance to pick a 
cinematic style through which you're going to tell this story. You know what I mean? And I, I don't know if I love the style or styles that they went with because you do have the epic Braveheart type zooming through the, the, the Highlands sort of sweeping epic shots. And I feel like there are times that that clashed. I don't love opening this, this movie with a water. No, in that I don't see the benefit of it. This is one of those times where it feels like a little bit like it's doing something showy off the bat to be showy off the bat. I don't know the motivation for those camera movements. And I don't know the motivation for not having a cut there. It, it doesn't quite work for me in the genre that we're talking about, like this historical, larger than life, epic tale of gods among men kind of thing. And, and maybe the whole point of the 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 movie is to sort of lift that curtain and show these people the way they really are. but. I don't know. It just kind of clashed with me with the general style that they end up going with for a lot of the rest of the movie. I think that the point of the wonder in this is all about setting the tension and that everyone is on tenterhooks about what could happen. I don't know that it succeeds that well at it, but when this came out, that was a that was a thing. It was a a way, you know, it was a it was a fad. That's the word. It was the fad of the times. So it feels like a fad. It does. It does. And honestly, I didn't really even notice. And that might have been because I was still um, distracted for the night before I settled down to watch. But they said that and I was like, oh, yeah, it was. Eh. It didn't feel more or less dramatic than any of the other cinematography because there is a lot of drama in this cinematography. Like... Some folks choose to, you know, it's filmed just straight on, maybe a couple of different cameras. You know, there's lots of different ways to shoot a movie. And there's some folks like apparently Barry Aykroyd who can use his camera like it's a score. And that can be a good thing or a bad thing where they used three to four, I guess, for the entire film. That was kind of the standard. Yeah. So the camera work in this is so I mean, not over the top, but it's lush. Like, there is so much movement and so many close-ups and running shots. There's several, uh, I think they probably would have been helicopter, but maybe they were drone shots at this point. Hard to tell when that exact switchover happened. But, you know, there's lots of crane shots in this that are pretty well disguised. I'm usually one where you get one or two crane shots in a movie, and then anything more than that is too much. Too many cranes for you. Yeah, yeah. You know what was a weird shot for me in in this movie among all of the other shots is the shot on the boat that's like the close-up of him mm. and he's staring off into the distance and Douglas is behind him talking to him and they're like in that yeah. little longboat. Is this before? Is this like... Yeah, this is like maybe like two-thirds of the way through the movie. Okay. Because he's getting his ass kicked a lot right. in this movie. And it's just like this long, very... I don't know if the word is stoic. It's it's almost like a nihilistic shot. Mm-hmm. And it looks like something that belongs in hell or high water. Yeah, there was definitely a lot of this because I saw that. I saw that one when it came out because it was a it was a best picture nominee. And I think it was justifiably so. It certainly wasn't the worst. That was the Mel Gibson movie that came out that year that I'm sure we'll review someday. Wait, what was that? Hacksaw Ridge. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, there's. 
a lot of deliberate choices made in this that feel like it's a capital D, capital C. Like they want the audience to know that this was purposeful. And it's like, man, every shot you do with your camera is purposeful. (laughs) Like, I don't know that you need to spell it out so much, but I also kind of liked it because to a certain extent, and this will sound weird, but it, it kind of feels of the era. Like it's very almost stiff and stylized, which was very much a, a thing of, you know, higher culture in that era was everyone has their role to play and everyone wears very uncomfortable clothing. And Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought you meant 2018. And I'm like, damn, Katie's referring to four years ago as an era. I'm like, I think that might be a little, that might sound a little pretentious. <laughs> then no. I realized you were talking about the 14th century. I'm like, never mind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In this era, I'm like 2018. Like, <laughs> I mean, in it the was times. It was it, the pre-COVID right. time. That is true. Historically, that will go down as an era. Uh, yeah, exactly. But I will not be so pretentious as to, <laughs> as to call it such. I was like, ooh, Katie's going to get some hate mail on this one. I, I told you guys about my son, right? I mean, yes. I mean, you've told us so many things. About about how, like, the 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 bullshit that I have to put up with from him. The bust. The bust is well, not the just bust. the bust, but and this is something that my parents never had to deal with, and my grandparents never had to deal with. Maybe my great grandparents, but he refers to everything prior to the year two thousand as the nineteen hundreds, and I fucking hate oh, it. Oh yes, that's awesome. I'm like, you're not wrong, right? Like we were born in the late nineteen hundreds, not wrong. But he's like, oh, is that how they used to do it in the nineteen hundreds? And I'm like, yes. We called them the 90s, thank you. (laughs) Look, life has a way of handing out karma. I don't get upset at things people say that make me feel old because I'm like, you'll be old someday too. And if if he's fucking lucky, he'll get old. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The alternatives are you're going to get old. Getting old is the the best case scenario. I don't know. I've seen some old that is not the best case scenario. (laughs) I just meant getting older. Let's just put it that way. But um, I want to go back for a second on the one because I thought it was interesting that the two comparisons that sprung to mind that we've actually covered on this show, because Birdman is one from this era, quote unquote, or this fad where like that was the big film that did it. But the ones that we've actually covered were 1917 and Atonement. 1917, of course, famously being the entire thing is shot that way. And Atonement, there's a shot in the middle during uh, uh, that's Dunkirk, right? It's during the yes. sort of mm-hmm. Dunkirk uh, evasion withdrawal thing. And I remember t- us talking about it there where we were like, what's the point of this one? It feels like they're really trying to press the, hey, look at us. We're being artistic thing. And so I feel like that was on the side of unnece- the unnecessary side of the spectrum. In 1917, while some people complain that it's a gimmick, and I think we broke down from the filmmaker's perspective why they thought that this actually went hand in hand with the type of story that they were telling in World War One. So ostensibly, at least at least the intention is on the other end of it, where it's like, we're not doing this to be artsy, even though inevitably some people are going to look at it that way. We're actually driving the plot forwards with this camera technique. And so... Again, being forewarned, because this is the first bit of trivia, tells you that this is a nine-minute one or in the opening. Uh, I, a, I don't think I would have noticed had no one pointed it out to me. And B, I found myself racking my brain to think, right, do I hate this because it's not that noticeable? Because I'm like, why did you spend all this effort and make all this time to do this complicated thing when it doesn't really serve a purpose in the plot? But then I also thought, but if it doesn't stick out, 
isn't it doing what it's supposed to be doing because it's not distracting you and it's not jumping out? So I don't know. But my question would be, what is it supposed to be doing? Because what I found the effect was, was to hold all of the characters at an arm's length. Mm. Right. As it's trying to get everybody into the shot. As, just, yeah. It's like, I, it all I, becomes a muddle. Yeah. I didn't feel like if the point of the, the introduction of Robert, the Bruce is for me to get a good feeling for Robert, the Bruce. It was like watching a drunk guy on the other side of the party. See, but I don't think I didn't catch this scene as uh, the purpose of it to be getting you like getting to know Robert the Bruce. That's not what I got out of it. So, no, sure. And and I agree that that's not what the the purpose of it is in this movie, I guess. But you're going to make a movie about Robert the Bruce and the opening shot is Robert the Bruce kneeling at the feet of the king, getting his blessing for coming back into the fold. You're not going to take that opportunity to like set up the dude that we're going to be sticking with for a really long time. I think it does. Or like letting letting me in. I don't know. I think it tries to. I think that is the aim of the scene. But I felt very cold towards pretty much everybody on the screen. And I don't think it was the acting. No, I agree. Okay. No. I mean, I don't think it's maybe it doesn't focus enough on Bruce, but I do think the purpose of this scene is kind of like the purpose of the intro text. It's giving you a little bit more of a holistic perspective on who the Scottish nobles are who are involved, who is there and surrendering to the king, and who is conspicuously missing that they might talk about, and what the relationship is between the king and his son, Edward II, as well as a little glimpse into the kind of hard-ass personality that the Longshanks has, at least in popular culture, in terms of, like, for example, the trebuchet scene is mostly real. He didn't have Greek fire, but he did refuse the surrender of that castle and launch at least, I think, one projectile into them because he took 30 carts to take that thing from one place to another in broken down pieces. And I'm sure it took like a day and a half to assemble. So he was like, well, fuck this. We're here. We're trying this thing. I mean, that I can kind of get. That's a lot of work to not play with the new toy. Right. Exactly. Now you can accept the surrender. Yes, sir. Okay, so not to, and and this is the last thing I'm going to say about this, but, and not to harp on it too much. The basics of cinematography and editing, if you're editing a conversation, Mm -hmm. doing a shot reverse shot between two people having a conversation is changed entirely by where you put the camera. Right, which a, a shot reverse shot, for those who don't know, is the camera is looking, typically it's one face to a second face. And it's the perspective of one person and then the perspective of the other person. So you've the camera is supposed to kind of be them. Right. Not necessarily all the time, but it's... Right. You could do it over the shoulder, but... Right. Yeah. If you do an over-the-shoulder shot reverse shot where you catch, like, the the shoulder or the head of the person being spoken to in the frame versus if you don't, that either puts you inside the conversation or outside the conversation. You're either in it or you're observing it. Right. Right. That can completely change the dynamic of how you feel about those characters in that conversation. And that's sort of what I say when I, when I don't know what the intent of this shot was is I really didn't get a feeling for any of these characters, how I was supposed to relate to them or how 
I was supposed to be feeling about anybody in particular. Like I didn't get a good vibe for anybody in this nine minute shot where I'm supposed to meet everybody. Right. And I don't think your feeling would change if these nine minutes stayed exactly the same, but they just did traditional editing with it and it wasn't a one shot. I feel like it might've is what I'm saying. Oh, you're okay. You're saying they could have put the cameras in different places. Okay, sure. They would have made different choices. Cause if you're doing that right, type of right. shot, it requires specific movements from your cast. The camera has to go in a specific path. So typically they're not going to change the focal length of each shot uh, because that's very obvious when you are moving the camera and it's going to make your audience have a reaction that you're not necessarily going to want. So everybody kind of has to say the same distance away from things, which I think the opening scene and how they shot it works because it does introduce you to everyone. But I agree with you, Liam, that it is kind of cold and at a distance. And it did make me wonder, you see the scene with Robert and then Douglas comes in and I was like, I thought this movie was about Robert the Bruce. Are we also supposed to care about this guy? Like, what's this guy's involvement? Oh, I got the, oh, you'll be seeing me later vibe from him. That was about all I got. That was. <laughs> yes. By the end of the scene, it was clear. Okay. Remember the name <laughs> Douglas. Yeah. Right. right. Okay, buddy. And everybody does, actually. We did remember. It's not necessarily the right way to to open the film, but it's a competently done shot. But I don't think it. I do agree. I don't think it inspires the emotional response that they were necessarily looking for based on the rest of the film. And maybe they weren't looking for it, but I'd really be interested to hear why they weren't looking to have that emotional response that those immediate like heartstring tugs that can be done subtly. Or just to read an interview where they talk about it and, and explain their thinking behind it. If that exists, I will be looking that up later. Now... Our returning champion of research here is Dave Feldman, our friend Dave. We had to rearrange the order of the film. So this one, we didn't have quite as much time to get the research done. So we just had one researcher. I'm going to read the introductory text that's actually from the beginning of the film, because I think that while it does what the film does, which is compress events and maybe mix a little bit of chronology, nothing is explicitly incorrect about it in the history. And then I'll add a little bit of what Dave had to say about this time period in Scotland. So the film opens up in 1304. When their king died with no direct heir, the Scottish lords appointed King Edward I of England to choose a successor. Instead, he seized power and brutally occupied the country. The Scots rebelled, led by Sir William Wallace, and a bitter war ensued. Wallace was defeated at Falkirk and went into hiding. All resistance crushed, the Scottish lords completed their surrender to Edward as he lay siege to Stirling, the last castle in Scottish hands. So that's kind of what we see uh, at the end of this shot where he has Warwolf, which was actually the name of that trebuchet, I'm assuming, because it was the first one or the biggest one or something. So here's what Dave had to say about the background of this period. Outlaw King begins at the close of what we can call the first phase of the First War of Scottish Independence. They didn't call it that at the time, but that's what it's called now. The Scots had been defeated at Falkirk, and most of the Scots' fighting surrendered. We didn't say it before, but the film Braveheart, which we'll bring up again while there are tons of historical inaccuracies in that film, kind of depicts the events before this, Battle of Stirling Bridge, etc. 
The political situation in Scotland and the future UK in general is enormously complicated. For example, Robert the Bruce himself came from Norman stock, whose family had migrated to Scotland years before as nobles. As a nobleman, he, like many Scottish lords, had lands throughout England and Wales. Scottish nobles would also frequently be allies of the English crown, but might also have lands in France as well, making alliances with the French monarchy as attractive as one with the English. The so-called Auld Alliance, the military alliance between France and Scotland, which would go on to exist for centuries, began just before Outlaw King. At this time, Highland clans were still very powerful in Scotland, and their allegiance might change very quickly. Outlaw King actually underscores how malleable the situation was in terms of shifting alliances and betrayals. This is just one of those things that you have to get used to in Scottish history. There is a ton of backstabbing. I have a question that I feel like is not going to be very popular. And it's a two-part question. One, would this movie have been made today without Braveheart in 1995? And two, how would this movie have been made differently without Braveheart in 1995? It'll just state my case real quick. I feel like Braveheart, warts and all, was a big enough of a cultural phenomenon that everybody knows who William Wallace is now. Right. And that seeing William Wallace's disembodied arm and shoulder joint was considered in their minds probably enough to elicit a response from the audience in this movie, which I don't think would have been the case if Braveheart hadn't existed, which means that the whole the, the whole like chronology of the storytelling, they, they probably would have in, introduced William Wallace. Yeah, I think we probably would have found out more. I don't think that seeing Braveheart is necessary to see this movie. I don't know that you necessarily need to know who William Wallace is, but I think it does change how well you're going to receive the film and how well you're going to understand what's going on. Because unless you are Scottish or British, I think people know the name of Robert the Bruce, but he's not that very well known. Yeah, I, I knew who he was from Braveheart. For the layman, obviously there are historians outside of England and Scotland who are very well versed in this. But for average person, average viewer, oh, of sure, course, sure. that's what I'm talking about. Is the the regular like Netflix and chill dude who's like, "Hey, baby, let's watch this." I hear Chris Pine has a D in. <laughs> yep, that's how I sold it to my husband. That's yeah, got that D. I was disappointed in the D scene, but we could talk about that later. <laughs> that wet dick. Yes, not for yes. the good reasons. He's taking a bath. Do you think that Braveheart is necessary viewing for this? I don't think it's necessary viewing, but I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody that's like, ooh, Outlaw King about Robert the Bruce, who hasn't probably also already seen Braveheart. Yeah, I mean, no doubt Braveheart made not only William Wallace's name a household name, and sadly, Randall Wallace for people who looked up who who was involved <laughs> in writing that thing, but also Robert the Bruce. Robert the Bruce is a significantly big character in that film as well. And while, again, the relationship and the history fudges with things a lot, yes. certainly if you're going to remember two people from Braveheart, it's William Wallace and Robert the Bruce, especially for the way his betrayal of Wallace is portrayed in that film which I think represents in general kind of this betrayal that there was going on between the Scottish lords. There was a lot of internal politics, as Dave mentioned. So, mm -hmm. yes, to answer your first question, I think this film would have been made. But two, the difference would be, I think they probably would have rewound the clock a little bit and included some of what William Wallace started. Now, interestingly, 
the original cut of this film was four hours. So it sounds like some critics saw a two and a half hour version, complained that there were too many fights, etc. needed to be cut down. The filmmakers or the studio responded to that and cut it down to two hours. But that was already after an hour and a half had been removed. Now, I don't know what scene, what cut this scene was out of, if it was in the original four hours or if it was in the two and a half hour version. But William Wallace is a character in this film. He was just cut. Yeah, he was. Only his arm made it. <laughs> no, you see his head later, too. But the, Good one, Liam. Yep. On the, the London Bridge. But that was also cut off. It was cut off. He had no head. They put it up there by itself. Okay, I'm sorry. I have to shit on Dave for a second. And it's not because I don't love Dave, but it's because he made a goof. And it's just too good to not mention. So... When Dave was texting me about this film because he was, you know, sending me pedantic things about this sort or that sort. Uh, although, again, his opinion overall is that the film is pretty historically accurate. He goes, and then they included William Wallace's leg, like nailed to, you know, the town square. And it's like a six foot long leg. He's like, what is this guy? Ten feet tall? Like, are, that's not realistic at all. This would have been a ridiculous person. And so when I was getting ready to watch the film, I was primed, <laughs> right? I'm like, oh, I'm watching out for this leg. because This is going to be hilarious when they have this monstrously long leg. And then you see the first scene, of course, the, the first introduction of William Wallace in this cut of the film. And it is a bloody squarish piece of meat with then an extension and then five fingers at the top. And I was like, okay. Uh, so then I go to see the other scenes and there's a scene with William Wallace's head, which side note, speaking of your connection to Braveheart, how hilarious would it have been if they had done a like wax casting of Mel Gibson's head and used that as the, Oh man, I bet <laughs> you know, been been, it would have been hilarious. So, Anyways, I keep I kept going through the film to try and find these other body parts. I'm like, did they include all of William Wallace in different parts of this film? And I never saw it's the Where's Waldo of this. Exactly. Where's Wallace? Yeah. Where- <laughs> <laughs> it was right there, Katie. How that did was, you not do that? That was right there. Sorry, I missed it. So you could be involved in the joke. Low hanging fruit, just like Chris Pine. <laughs> <laughs> So I get to the end of the film and I don't find a leg. So I text him. I'm like, Dave, is this the scene you're talking about? And I pause it and send him a screenshot. He's like, yeah. I'm like, that's quite obviously a piece of torso and his arm. When's the last time you saw a leg with five fingers on it? And he goes, oh, eh, whatever. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to if you're I'm going to have to start uh, being way more critical of your pedantry here. I'm going to have to double check your work here. <laughs> that's pretty great. Yeah. So anyways, the the deleted scene, which is one of the three deleted scenes, I think, that are out there. I could not find this actual scene, so I couldn't tell you what the scene with Wallace is. But it is him essentially hiding with some Scotsman in the woods and Robert the Bruce runs into him and they have a conversation. So that's the scene with William Wallace in the film. So it looks like they did put some thought into making a more direct connection with Wallace and then having the news of him being killed, maybe hit home a little more because even viewers of just this mm-hmm. film would have been like, Oh shit. We were just, we just saw that guy. There was that guy, the guy now he's been quartered. Yeah. But I was just like, Oh, they've all seen brave. Pretty much. Yep, apparently. I mean, I think it's impossible to ignore. Most viewers of this are going to have seen Braveheart, at least in our age and older, maybe the young kids. Yeah, we're we're going to get to a place in 10 years where there's going to be a generation of people that watch Outlaw slash King first and then maybe go back and watch Braveheart. I didn't expound on it at the beginning, but I thought it was funny that 
pretty much 95% of everything I saw said Outlaw King on this. Everything does, except the movie. Is it the movie that says Outlaw slash King? The movie says Outlaw slash King. Like, that's the title is Outlaw slash King. It's like, which is he? Both, neither, or? All of the above. I wonder if that's... That's a decision they decided to like scrub that and then they just forgot to scrub the actual film. I don't know. Yeah, it was just like he's an outlaw and he's a king. Depending on your perspective is probably yeah. what they were going with, but it does it's, it's not. It also does the fun thing where like they don't show you the title for like 10 fucking minutes. Love that. You sound super sarcastic. <laughs> I, I sound like I'm being facetious, but I actually kind of sometimes I actually do love that. On Fright Pub, we covered hour of the wolf okay oh boy which was a uh, an ingmar bergman horror film in in its original language the the title is vargtman oh my that title drops halfway through the movie that's it's real jarring but i love it yeah i was like we just got the title now awkward leave it to bergman going back for a second to cinematography when you mentioned the shot on the boat so i didn't realize it but when i went to play this movie on Netflix, you have play movie and play trailers right under it. And I accidentally clicked on play trailer. Oh no, you broke your rule. <laughs> well, I, I, you don't watch trailers, true. but I, I stopped 30 seconds into it. Cause I, I definitely <laughs> just wanted to watch the film. I realized I was watching a trailer. Couldn't allow this. I chastised myself sternly. <laughs> I put on my burlap hair suit. No, the interesting part is that the trailer opens with that scene and you hear this drum in the background. So it's like, bum. and the scene opens up and it's Chris Pine's face and he's looking kind of panicked. And then uh, Douglas is behind him. Thinking about revenge. And then it cuts to his wife being taken and, you know, people being killed and whatever. It tears out the soul. Where's your brother? No! It can also be a weapon. And, you know, for the first minute, I thought I was watching the film. It's not that I was like, oh, no, it's a trailer. I was like, oh, this is a super interesting opening to the film because I thought they were doing a sort of flashback style for a minute. And it kind of intrigued me because I was like, this is a really cool and uh, non-traditional way to open this film. And then I realized what had happened. I was like, oh, shit. And then I go back and start with this nine minute wonder. And, you know, it was only 10 percent of me. But a small part of me was like, I kind of liked what they were doing in the trailer. I almost wish they'd open the movie like that. (laughs) Dude, just describing that, that sounds better to me. I mean, it's kind of cool, right? Like everything has already happened and you're confused about why they're on this boat. And he looks worried. He's not looking like heroic or stoic. And you just hear the guy behind him go, are you thinking about revenge? (laughs) And then the movie goes into like a battle or something. I was like, that would have been sick. Oh my God. Yes. Because let me tell you. (laughs) Dan makes it better. Dan just made it better. Dan in the trailer guy. By complete accident. (laughs) Yeah. Dan in the trailer editor. Team effort. This movie is like they kind of didn't want to make your traditional medieval war epic. Yeah. Right. They wanted to put more of a modern spin on it. Hence the cinematography. There's your fucking modern spin. Right. Like that tells you (laughs) right up front what kind of bullshit movie you're about to get into. And I am here for it. Give me some of that. Yeah. I'm I'm not going to disagree. I think that if you cut the movie like that, it might actually make it better. More interesting. It would make it so, oh my God. So first of all, you're already right in there with him. Second of all, this movie's a fucking slog and a half. No. 
after the longest day, this movie was a breeze. Right? <laughs> no, I mean, just like as far as like, Jesus fucking Christ, is this guy going to catch a break? <laughs> he uh, he ends up king, right? Like yes. he, he survives this. Is like, we know what happens. Oh my God. He gets his ass beat so many times. Yeah, he does. Which Everywhere he goes. It does indeed happen. I mean, I, I wondered in the scene where he um, murders John Common Oof. in front of the altar. What a bad idea. You could see, but I got to say the acting in this. Chris Pine makes this work for him. He's phenomenal. He really just does fantastic because you can you could see in his face the calculations that are going a mile a minute in his head of how am I going to respond to this? How am I going to handle this? And then it's almost like his right hand doesn't even know what it's doing. It just reaches forward and grabs the guy's dagger and shoves it up into his skull. The Bible said that don't let your right hand know what your right hand is doing. <laughs> and I was like, that was a damn good acting moment. Cause you then see almost the shock on his face. Like, Oh, I'm in a church. This is bad. Yeah. Shit. And it's hard to know. I assume people were devout Catholics then. I believe oh this is pre-Calvinism. Yeah, this is pre-Calvinism, way before Calvinism. Or not way before, but a couple but hundred before. years before. I know they weren't wearing kilts. That's yes. all I know. And the swords are exactly. accurate. They're not, they don't have like German long swords and like shit that doesn't belong in here. Yes. And the armor is mostly accurate. And the haircuts. They're wearing colorful stuff the clothes are good like the costuming is so well done they look clean when they're supposed to be clean and they look dirty when they're supposed to be dirty instead of like welcome to the middle ages everything is filthy and also we have this weird blue filter a la ridley scott so yeah there's they got a lot going for it the one thing they could not make accurate unless they really wanted to cgi the landscapes is this is sad and interesting all at the same time but you run into this from time to time Scotland is shown as having bare hills much as it is now but at the time of Robert the Bruce those hills were fully forested and I'm like oh man that just makes me sad is that because uh they cut it all down to build to fight the the Spanish armada that's a extremely fucking specific question that I was not prepared to answer but uh they cut them down for something well, yeah, like when the like the, the Spanish Armada was coming, they were like, fuck, we need some boats. And so they like cut down literally every tree. This is one of those things that I heard along the way. So feel free All to correct right. me. I'm we'll not a historian. We're going to hear about this. We are. I, I have heard that and I would like confirmation. This is more of a question than a statement. Sure. Well, we're going to be hearing from our Scottish listeners regardless on this episode. So I would love to hear a few things from them. Uh, the other one, and I'll ask... Maybe Liam, but both of you guys probably know. Overall, relatively speaking, for an American actor, how was Chris Pine's Scottish accent? I thought it was good. It's very good. For a Scottish accent by, an, by a kid from L.A., it's very good. <laughs> you fight for God, for honor, for country, for family, for yourselves. I do not care so long as you fight! I thought it was good. I thought it was okay. consistent. I didn't necessarily think it was authentic. Like, I feel like if I'm listening to like a Scottish person speak, it should take me a little bit of time for my ear to adjust sure. to that accent. Yes. You know what I mean? And that didn't have to happen with this. I could very easily tell, mm -hmm. but it was enough that it wasn't distracting. It was a good serviceable. It was Scottish for general audiences. Right. Yes, exactly. Like it, you didn't get like that really good 
guttural burr in the voice, you know, is just like. Both The Independent and The Guardian commented on how good of a job he did and that he didn't sound like trash. <laughs> they were both like, this is a reasonably good Scottish accent. Good on you, sir. And it's also, it's also likely that the nobles of this time would have spoken French to each other and the Scots would have spoken yes. Scott. But it's like, you know, it's whatever Scottish dialect existed in the 1300s. So if they had gone, we've talked about this yeah. before, right? About accents and foreign language. Like if they, if they had been going for linguistic authenticity on this, ain't nobody understanding shit. I mean, I had the subtitles on. Of course. Because I like to, you know, catch everything. But yeah, I think I really can't blame them for the choices they made to just generally have English. And also, like, they didn't go Prince of Thieves, where Chris Pine just speaks in an L.A. accent the entire time. Like, that would have been ridiculous. So it required some work, obviously, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure. Or like uh, when you had Clark Gable playing Charles Stewart Parnell back in the 30s and 40s. So, like, it's like, yes, I'm Irish. (laughs) Well, we just had Sean Connery making the comment about... (laughs) the irish and he's famously very scottish and i don't think he did a very good irish accent well he he got his oscar for playing an irishman in what the untouchables best supporting actor. thought you were gonna say darby and the little people i was like he got a fucking oscar <laughs> yeah, famous he got a fucking oscar for darby o'gill no he played uh he played malone first movie right off the bat <laughs> it was it was a pity oscar let's all be Man. through the door like a young brando there's another character in this that we were introduced to in Braveheart, who will eventually become Edward II, but uh, Longshank's son and heir to the throne, who in reality was the youngest of, I think, four brothers and was just the last one remaining alive by the time his father died. I don't think he would have been the number one pick. So obviously in both of these films, they're sort of on the side of the Scots, right? The English are the baddies and the Scots are the ones you're rooting for. It's much more subtle here. And Longshanks doesn't come off as this fucking monster the way he does in Braveheart. However, I find it interesting that they chose to not touch at all upon the rumors of homosexuality that followed his son, which are leaned into pretty hard in Braveheart in a very 90s kind of feels homophobic kind of way because is homophobic kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're supposed to dislike that character simply because he's with the English and he's going to fight the Scots, right? He's already set up to be an antagonist, but that one feels very much like the gay is bad. Let's make the antagonist gay kind of thing, or at least let's lean into it. Whereas in this one, They don't go into that at all. In fact, it's not even alluded to. It's just completely removed, which I found was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't say how his, how the nobles ended up killing him. Right. Which is interesting because again, these rumors of him being gay are disputed in the historical record, which makes sense for a historical record that's from the 1300s. And also it's for a person in that position. You can't just say, well, he was married to a woman and had five kids with her. Like, well, that doesn't say anything about his sexuality because a person in his position would have almost always have done that, right? Because they're producing heirs and it's like their responsibility. It's part of the job. Yeah. I mean, I I know there was this famous younger, good looking male courtesan that had all this favor and like didn't do shit. So he didn't really deserve any of the court's favor. And like that's rumored to have been one of his lovers, et cetera. But In the bigger picture, what did you guys think about his portrayal in general? I mean, I think this leans into, he doesn't get a lot of range. He's still petulant, jealous child is kind of how he plays. Like in the beginning when um, he challenges Robert to a duel and then his dad calls him in and he's like, grow up. 
I am a grown-up. Right. It's his fault. Which, again, he was the youngest of four boys, so... That was a flounce and a half. So, I mean, which could be realistic, could not be realistic for that historical figure, but it definitely sends the message about who that character is immediately. You know all you need to know, and he does nothing unpredictable from that point forward based on that tiny little interaction that we see between him and Robert the Bruce and then him and his father. Yeah, no, I agree with that. He's insufferable from the start. The place where I'll give this movie and the actor's performance like a little more credit than that is in his interactions with Florence Pugh. Yes, I agree. I liked those. I thought those were some pretty... And I guess in a larger sense, that's kind of what this movie does well, is it shows some of those blurred lines between like, oh, these guys were in the Crusades together, like they, they fought in the Holy Land. And had a pet monkey. Yeah, and had a pet monkey. There's a monkey. Did you miss that scene? I missed the pet monkey. You missed the pet monkey scene? In the movie, he talked about how he and Longshanks oh. had the pet monkey that they- Robert the Bruce Sr. talks about it. Who was also in Braveheart. I missed that part. Okay. He also played someone's father. Yeah, he was uh, Hamish's father. Yeah. Just in Braveheart. Not quite as old. Mm. Yeah, no. And, and those two historical characters did fight in the Crusades together. Yeah. So, I mean, like, yes, they would have known each other growing up. And now he's got to, like, hang her out a window. It's just really interesting to see how- the times and the politics of the times demanded these kinds of divisions of people that you'd Mm -hmm. probably grown up with based on decisions that they have no part in making, you know, like Florence Pugh, I think scene I was the most invested in honestly is the scene where Elizabeth gets captured. And because her dad is the second Earl of Ulster, Richard de Burr. And he was, one of the most powerful Irish nobles of the late 13th century. Right. So she would have been Irish, mm-hmm. which we did not get an Irish accent out of. Again, like at that time when you're transplanting nobles over into Ireland, right. they probably wouldn't have sounded like the locals. That's true. And they were Normans. Native Irish and Anglo-Norman ancestry. Born and raised in Ulster. So there's the scene with her and her parents where they are demanding that she uh, and the some representative of the court and are demanding that she renounce her marriage and, you know, condemn Robert's actions. And that is such a horrifically fraught situation to be in through like as she gets married off. She gets no choice in any of this. And they're asking her to, you know, give him up. And that choice means She's disgracing herself in some way, whether by going along with this and having her be seen as faithless to Robert, who she loves. But the other option is likely long-term imprisonment or death. And while it shows her being hung off of you know the side of the bridge, that is actually what they did uh, to Robert's sisters. Her, they sent to live in like abject poverty, probably near a nunnery or something. And they actually didn't get reunited until about eight years later, which is when Robert actually wins, becomes King of Scotland, and they do a prisoner exchange. I think Elizabeth, for me, was by far and away the most interesting part of this film. And there was some grumbling in the reviews about feminist ideology and shit. But if you're at all familiar with that time period, the women of that time period who were of that class were expected to 
know all of this stuff. They were expected to be responsible for their households and be able to converse and have political opinions so that they could be helpful to their partner because it's a middle ages man everybody's got to do their bit and there's backstabbings going on everywhere i don't have any issue with her capability where i had some question was in the accuracy of their relationship uh, she was said to have i mean not much is known about her but i mean no i mean as far as as far as or i'm sorry maybe not their relationship their courtship he is extremely like they are both extremely patient with one another in feeling out this whole marital bed situation. Yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure about that. There isn't a whole lot of information given about it. It does seem to be a marriage of here. You you can have this one. Yeah, it's like your wife died here. Have new wife. Yeah, exactly. Uh, have, have new 18 year old wife who's 10 years younger than you. Right. And the purpose of that is for children. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It, it, children and alliances and appeasement and things all sorts of weird politics going along with with marriages at the time right because her father was very close to king edward right and so it was meant to tie robert's allegiances to edward rather than scotland and a baby would have helped that male baby hopefully but yeah which they did then have like four kids Exactly. But I think, and I didn't read the criticisms, so I don't know if their issue was with her feminist ideology or her capability or like that was, like I said, the only thing that, that stuck out to me is being like, no, well, that looks a little modern for the period is how it's just like, oh no, well, no, we mustn't. I'm not feeling it yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think that would have very much been a personal thing that they wouldn't have, no one would have found it important to record. And it totally could have. He was said to love his first wife and all that shit. So who knows? I, I was going to bring this up anyways, if you guys hadn't. So let me try and speak to just how it's depicted in the film, because we don't know the historical accuracy of the nuance in there and who was having sex when. It'd be fascinating to actually know, though, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, for sure. And also why they decided that a good move for the character was to sit on the bed for 30 seconds and then walk out with the expectation that everyone outside thought that you had consummated your marriage. And I'm like, I mean, come on. Like, he didn't even take his boots off. Like, at least sleep in the same bed. I mean, just play cards for like an hour or something, you know? <laughs> they do take their boots off. The, the servants take their boots off. Yeah, but... <laughs> and it afforded a great moment for that funny joke. That was quick. Hi, well, you know plenty about that, Seamus. That's true. And I'm glad they made a joke out of it uh, because I was like, no one's going to buy that you actually had sex, which is not something you would want the court to know. Like you wouldn't want the court to think that right. there were issues, right? If you haven't consummated the marriage, then it's not technically a marriage. Yet. Exactly. And also then people start, you know, rumor mill starts going on. Like, why? Like, did she refuse him? Did he? Is He's he gay. gay. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, I would like to say, and this is coming from the person who has gone on record as like not being super into the intrigue and romance of upper class rich people certainly not in the 1800s like that's not my favorite genre but i really did you just say the 1800s yes i'm saying i okay that's the period i've gone on record about right like like downton Abbey gotcha. stuff so like you just wanted to make sure that it wasn't like you were referring to this as the 1800s sorry no no i'm aware this is not the 1800s 
<laughs> I was like, did you just say the wrong? Thank you, Liam. I was looking out for you. <laughs> Liam's got my back. I do. They were much less lusty in the 1800s than the 1300s. I don't want to call it superficial, but I have to say the last thing I was expecting this film to do was give me a love story that I cared about and that I thought was well done and that I actually bought. And it does that not just in one scene, but in many scenes, I really bought into the relationship between him and Elizabeth. And again, even more surprisingly, the scene that did that the most for me was when they do consummate the marriage. I thought the love scene in this film was a fucking 10. And I'll tell you why. Not because I was like, oh, this is so hot. Or I was so into, you know, oh, I hope maybe this is where I get to see Chris Pine's D. You know, <laughs> it, wasn't I was anything like, <laughs> it wasn't anything like no, that. I knew when it was. I knew when it was coming. Yeah, you did. I did the research, man. <laughs> like what? Where's the timestamps? <laughs> where do I pause? <laughs> you always know when, when Chris Pine's D is coming. I was actively a critic at this time. So I just asked one of my one of my friends. So is it worth it? Is it worth it? We almost got it. We almost got some hilt in this scene. Is is it worth it? And they were like, no, it's not. It's a good try, but it's not worth it. It's like, okay. Yeah, just go just go watch uh, the original Terminator. You can get a great shot of Arnold C. Much better. <laughs> Anyways, the point I was trying to make is that uh, like in their love scene, I think that it's very realistic in that these are two people who have never had sex before, that it is consensual. Like she's pulling him in and she's, you know, she's starting the situation and it does feel like there's a lot of love and romance in the scene. And again, for a film that was going to be about battles in the blood and the mud and all the historical stuff that we know about, they did a better job with the love story than they even needed to, because it's not the like the love story in Braveheart is more of a central point to the story than it is in this film. Like the vengeance story in Braveheart is pretty much set up that they slit William Wallace's wife's throat and that's it. He's going on the Mel Gibson <laughs> murder revenge and burning yeah. everything and killing everyone. It's the Mel Gibson murder tour. Right? Like that's the thing. And in this one, it's not even the mother of his child. It's not his first w- wife who arguably he was super in love with. They have this kind of slow buildup in this relationship. And man, I don't know. I, I want to. It was well see- developed. Yeah. Like maybe it was, it wasn't just me. I freaking loved it. No, I really liked it. No, but I blame Florence Pugh. I won't hear nothing against my Florence. Well, you blame her for what? I, I blame her for that working so well. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I, I blame Florence Pugh because- Oh, she's great in everything. Full disclosure, I didn't love her as Amy in, in Amy in Little Women, but in like everything else, she's I can't not just be absolutely drawn to and fascinated by her as a person. You know what I mean? Just like her- her presence is very strong. Yes, yes. And to be fair, Amy is a hard character because nobody likes her. Yeah, nobody likes Amy. She kind of sucks. Uh, you have to play her at two ages or be played by two different people. Yep. It's it's a tough thing. Tough part. Is she supposed to be likable in Midsummer? Because I feel like it's just whiny face for an hour. Oh, I fucking loved her in Midsummer. Yeah, but did oh. you did you like her? Like, did you like that character? Are you? Are yes. you? Like- uh, yes, yes, I did. Okay. Oh, yes. Fair yeah, enough. I was. I was. Very much on her side. Justice for Danny. (laughs) Oh, wait, she got her justice. Put that motherfucker (laughs) in a bear suit. Yeah. So this might sound like a slight, but I can't see her convincingly playing a weak character. Anytime she is there, she's fucking solid as a, as a building. You know what I mean? Like just, she, she has that kind of presence to her. The determination. 
She brings that to every role. She shows up and you're like, ah, a worthy adversary. Finally. Katie, what did you think? Like, let's just say there aren't any major inaccuracies in the relationship. What did you think of the portrayal? Oh, I really liked it. Okay. I I knew I was going to like it because they have really good chemistry and they actually cut a significant chunk out of their story from mm. that 30 minutes that they originally premiered it. No Tiff. surprise. So I would be interested to see what what was originally there. Are we going to get the Ridley cut of this, the like four hour long one? <laughs> no, this is Netflix. Netflix probably threw it in the proverbial trash. Yeah, they were like. Yeah, they, they just moved into the trash bin. And yeah, then we're done with it. Move along. What show can we cancel next? I liked it. I think that was kind of one of my favorite parts. I mean, I, I enjoyed watching them and it would have been so easy for them to just really downplay her role in this mm-hmm. or just have her be, you know, a lamp, as you would put it, Liam. Yeah, she is not a sexy lamp in this. No, arguably in real life, she may very well may have been the equivalent of a sexy lamp because that's kind of what women were in that position in their life a lot of time that was all that they were allowed to be but it was sweet and well played and not oh not too much okay i'm glad it's not just me no again an interesting thing to do really well in a war film right should we talk about some of the war yeah we should probably talk about some (laughs) war shit we've talked cinematography and love stories i think we're gonna lose listeners if we don't talk about some of the awesome shit that's in this movie (laughs) yes good save liam i'm here for the fans for the only fans. Only the fans. Yeah. <laughs> Aren't we all? Well, I'd like to get the bad out of the way first, and then we can talk about all the good, because there's not that much bad in this film when it comes to... Is the bad the ending? The ending's part of it, so maybe I'll save okay. that for later. <laughs> of course, we see the super widely used trope of fire arrows. Not once, but at least twice in this film. And I would love for... Not just a history nerd, but if we have a historian in the audience who has done their research on this, I would love to know if there is even one goddamn instant of fire arrows being used tactically ever in the history of mankind. Because from everything I've read, it seems like this is strictly a Hollywood thing and fire arrows like are never used and don't have any advantage, etc. Especially in the way they're depicted here aka a sneak attack at night where they have to be close enough that they would have been heard by the scottish sentries in the first place <laughs> like do we know if that like first ambush do we know if that was because in real life robert the bruce was like no nah, seems like a good dude he'll probably be honorable and face me in single combat tomorrow dude it's like okay no yeah tomorrow then you and me we're, and then the war will be over and we can all go home everybody like let's just keep this between us guy yeah, that felt stupid. And I wonder, would he have held to it if Robert hadn't killed John Common? Because that is kind of that's the reason that's given why the, he's willing to make. All right, I'll duel with you tomorrow, and then immediately. <laughs> just kidding. Actually, going to try to kill you all tonight. But why would Robert the Bruce even try to do that? He already murdered a dude in the face in a church. Like, isn't the die kind of cast at that point? I mean, they're. Yeah, there are a few things they do here that are like, is that really what would happen? I mean, uh, Scarface, Sam Spruill is the actor who plays Amer de Valence, Earl of Pembroke, 
you know, honestly, if you got rid of Edward II and just gave that guy more scenes, he was a pretty convincing antagonist, especially with like the scars everywhere on his face. He was good. Yes. You know, it's kind of like how in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, you never see Prince John. You just focus on the Sheriff of Nottingham. Right. Whereas other depictions of Robin Hood, Prince John is the big bad. Right. And the sheriff is the lackey. Right. That's because once you get Alan Rickman on your set, you're like, okay, yeah. we got to put that guy on camera all the fucking time. Re- rewrite the script real quick. So speaking of battles, the ambush with the McDougals when they're on the shoreline. McDougals. McDougal. So that's called the Battle of Delry. And the main inaccuracy there is that while the Bruce did get his ass kicked, he had 500 Scotsmen with him, not 40. <laughs> so it really was a uh, worse fight or ambush. Budgetary constraints. Yeah, but it also makes the Bruce not look as bad because it looks like they were outnumbered, which I'm not sure that was the case. But anyways, uh, generally speaking, the battles in this are well done. The armor and weapons are accurate. The main thing they do here, aside from the last battle, which I'll mention some details later, is compression and a little bit of chronology mixing around. Some events happen, you know, very quickly in succession here when they were really a year or two apart, or certain things are combined. So, for example, the final battle, which we'll get back to towards the end here, is a combination of the Battle of Bannockburn and the Battle of Loudon Hill. So they're sort of combined together. And then, very importantly, Edward II was not at that battle at all. So... Let alone the last man standing. Let alone the entire ordeal that happens with him at the end. Right. But here's what Dave had to say in general about... So for the armor and weapons nerds, you'll be pretty happy that they did an overall pretty good job. For the most part, they don't show long swords cutting through chainmail, although there's a few examples of it, so that accuracy is kind of mixed. But generally, the English and the Scots are armed properly. The English armies that invaded Scotland repeatedly during the Scottish Wars of Independence are extremely well documented. Perhaps as many as half received pay for their service, were outfitted by the royal treasury, and some amount of uniformity in kit and armaments could be expected. The infantry would have fought as heavy infantry as depicted, but would have used bell hooks. Knights would have used lances as their primary weapon and used their swords or battle axes once the lance was broken after charging the enemy. In the movie, the English cavalry charged without lances and uses swords from the beginning, which I had never thought about that particular point, but that makes total sense that if you're going to be on a horse charging enemy infantry, you want a lance right off the bat and then you at least take out one or two people. Something that can reach them. Right. Right. And then and then when you drop it or it breaks or whatever, obviously you have a sword and a dagger and all this other stuff, especially if you jump off your horse. But at the beginning, that's going to be the advantage for sure. There's also the moment where we see the construction of this pike trench that they built. I, I think that's what you would call that. And then they also have the pikes that they raise, which is also depicted in Braveheart, but... That was, I think, the Battle of Stirling in Braveheart? That was how they won the Battle of Stirling Bridge without the bridge, yes. Right, whereas this is a different battle, but it looks like that technique was one employed by the Scots more than once. Additionally, you see that this last sort of combined battle is fought around a bog, and they very specifically shaped the battlefield tactically so that the English would get bogged down in it. No pun intended. Oh, is that why they call it that? 
bot. Oh, wow. Look at yeah. us. We're just making linguistic discoveries left and right. <laughs> but yeah, in, in real life, I think the choke point was even more narrow and the bog was completely impassable. So really, they, they set themselves up well in a situation where the English were going to lose a lot of horses and, and have lots of problems. Again, not a historian. Don't at me. Just trying to give the gen- general feeling of this. But please write in if you know more about this battle and tell us all about it. What did you guys think of the combat and all that kind of stuff? It felt real, which is something that the more movies we watch set in this period and the more Dave gives us our education on it, the easier it is for me to delineate between when something is feels realistic rather than when it's like, eh, this is more fantasy. This is a Robin Hood Prince of Thieves moment. And in this, everything everything looks very heavy and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is accurate. There's no being comfortable or not feel like you are weighed down with chain mail in this. Just like the costumes feel so accurate. The fighting feels the same. I agree. Especially in the last battle, though, I was oftentimes a little at a loss to tell people apart, mm-hmm. which is frustrating to me in, in cinematic storytelling. Like, I understand that it's probably very real and that in that chaos, it was very difficult to tell people apart, but I'd like to know which person is the which person. Everybody gets really dirty. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's especially, I think we said at the beginning that, you know, this period of Scottish history is really complicated and so are the alliances, right? There's one point where I think it's one of the Scottish lords who's fighting with the English goes, Bruce. And I'm like, oh, they found each other on the battlefield. They're going to have a moment. And then they fucking he kills him. You know, and I was like, oh, that's a bad Scotsman. Okay, I got it. Yeah, it's like trying to keep track of all of those things was a little, could have been clearer. So like from a from an accuracy standpoint, nothing's jumped out at me as being like, oh, maybe they wouldn't have been flashing their butts at these guys. Right. But at the same time, that's one of the things that, you know, credit where it's due, I think Braveheart does really well, is that you have a good idea of what's happening to who in those battle scenes. And I didn't always have a good idea of what was happening to who in these battle scenes. But if the if the trade-off is to bring kilts in 400 years too early, is that really worth it? <laughs> I understand. But it wasn't, it wasn't because of the kilts. To me, the more egregious is... For me, the woad. Yeah, the cinematography, like they, they, you, you knew who these characters were, right? Very well by that point. And I think it's intentional in this with how how muddy and everything gets, both physically, as in literal mud, and atmospherically, and the lens filters that they use. There's a lot of dust and dirt in the air, and that's does make you kind of feel like you're there. I would guess that's the intention mm-hmm. is, okay, I'm just trying to survive in this very hellish environment, which is a choice that does, I think, do that. It limits your ability to know exactly what's going on. And I think this one airs a little too far on that side. Well, and the only time it really bothered me was, again, at the end, when the guy's like, retreat, the battle is lost. And I'm like, how the fuck can you tell? Yeah. How do you know, buddy? <laughs> you don't know who's dying and who's not dying. Like all of these people, everybody's dying. 
you might be winning. You're just making a guess. Just hang in there, kitten. Yeah, and and I think uh, also the level, while again, the real bog was more boggy and even more impassable, the level of mud and blood that was around, both in the real battle and in filming, is probably accurate in the way that it interfered with the actors and with the filming. During the scenes filmed at Mugdock County Park, the ground became increasingly muddy, with the scenes already bloody. This led assistant director Danny McGrath to repeat after each take, there will be mud, there will be blood. And I can only imagine after the 10th time he said that, how fucking annoyed all the actors must have gotten. Oh my God. <laughs> we know. Yeah, because they were eating it. I mean, they're in it. They must have been slipping Wait, around. I'm sorry, what was the name of that park? Oh man, M-U-G-D-O-C-K. Mud oh, Duck. I thought you said it was called like Mud Dock County Park park and i was like yeah mud dock they found the perfect place to shoot that scene <laughs> to be fair it's probably something like mug day or something weird because i don't know how to pronounce words from scotland but someone will tell us what do you guys think uh, <laughs> of all the side okay who was your favorite side character like not any of the main kings and queens and and lords who is not florence Pugh, right I would consider her a main character. I mean, okay. she's she's a woman in this period, so she's not going to take center stage, and it's not about her. But I would consider her a main character. Okay. Mm. I would say it's it's between Angus and uh, Douglas for me. Okay. We don't get nearly enough of Angus, but what we do get, I really liked. And is is Angus the father of the daughters that Douglas keeps going after? Or am I mixing him up? Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> He's like, it's his other daughter. I'm like, damn, bro, you're about to get your freaking dick chopped off. You're right. <laughs> and the little bits of interplay we get between the two of them, I'd be willing to bet that there was a little more of the two of them on the cutting floor uh -huh, as well. Because uh -huh. you don't necessarily need it, but it would have been, I would have liked to have seen more of them. Uh, yeah. I mean, mine is Douglas. But Liam, what, what was, did you have one? I think the daughter is mine. I really like the daughter and the relationship that, that she had with uh, with Florence Pugh. Oh, Marjorie is amazing. I love her. She was adorable. Yes. That was how I knew that Robert was going to love her. That daughter, that's the end. Gotta get in good with the daughter. Because how she treats his daughter, and you could see how attached he was to his daughter from that first moment between them. And it's like, oh, okay, great. So that was a good bit of foreshadowing that I liked. Yeah, she was a cutie. It's definitely Douglas for me, but you know what I was thinking about while I was watching it? It remind, and I can't remember the name of the character, but it reminded me of, I want to say he was an Irish in Braveheart, the Irish guy who's like, it's my island, right? Stephen. Because he does the crazy faces. Mm -hmm. He does. Stephen is my name. I'm the most wanted man on my island, except I'm not on my island, of course. More's the pity. Your island? You mean Ireland? Yeah. It's mine. He reminded me of that, but like way more muted, way more toned down. Yeah, it was a little more toned down for sure. So it was a little more toned down, which could be a very good thing. Except I, again, I feel like some, the, the film really kept me at arm's length. Like I never really got it. I think a, Liam really does want to see the four hour version of this film. I do. I never really <laughs> feel like I got the, the. I, I never got in there with any of these guys, except for like Florence Pugh was the only one I felt like I connected with. I don't know about you guys, but I could use a whole other film on James Douglas and his story because oh, yeah. he became, as the film tells you later in text, he became known as the black for his fierceness. 
The clan of Douglas would gain enormous power in Scotland. It was seen as a threat to the country's stability in the years after James' rule over the clan. In 1440, so well after he died, the clan leadership was invited to a dinner, served a black bull's head, then summarily murdered. Thereafter, it became known as the Black Dinner. So if that rings a bell, obviously George R. R. Martin took a little inspiration for the Red Wedding yes. from at least <laughs> that event, if not some other events. But I'm like, yeah, I, I want to see that movie too. Give me, give me more of James Douglas and his ancestors and the crazy shit they got into. And you know what's even what, another crazy thing it, that they don't talk about that is a whole other movie that I just had to mention because I stumbled across this while I was doing my research. So Edward Bruce was the younger brother of Robert the Bruce. And while Robert was uh, riling up the Scots and taking his claim, Edward went on over to Ireland and in 1315 uh, was proclaimed the High King of Ireland. Shut the fuck up, really? Yes, yes. So there is a whole... This family has some crazy history and I really look forward to the HBO or perhaps Showtime series about them because that's just gotta happen. So Robert and Elizabeth's uh, third child, David, went on to be the king of the Scots after uh, his father died. And then he did not leave an heir. So the throne of Scotland passed to the son of Robert's daughter, Marjorie, and her husband, Walter, high steward of Scotland, to Robert II, the first monarch of House Stuart, which would also inherit the throne of England. So, and descendants of the Bruce via the Stuarts, diluted by the blood of German cousins, still hold the throne of the UK today. Man, for as much as I don't give a shit about royalty and royal lines, like, that's just really fascinating that the people who were fighting Longshanks ended up eventually producing the descendants that took over the British crown. Oh, yeah. The crazy thing is, my one of my favorite factoids or facts about... Um, you can call it a factoid. <laughs> it's curiously strong. Kate Middleton is... The descendant of the Duke of Monmouth. That's right. Yes, he was the Duke of Monmouth is uh, Kate Middleton's uh, longtime removed grandparent. And he was a fucking badass. Not necessarily a nice person in any way, shape or form, but a total badass. So and correct me if I'm wrong, but I was I looked at the IMDb for this before mm-hmm, I watched it, mm-hmm. and I was watching for uh, Rebecca Robin, who plays Queen Margaret of England. Right? Is she ever in the movie? There are no fucking scenes with Queen Margaret, and she is the third billing. Yeah, what was up with that? Which means she was in it. She got paid, at least. Cutting room floor, baby. But yeah, yeah, she got cut, so. She got Terrence Malicked. Yeah. So this confused the shit out of me because I'm going through IMDb looking at the cast and the third woman on there is Rebecca Robin. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm right. I always write down the main characters and, and, uh, and the actors. And I'm like, oh, okay, right. So Rebecca Robin plays Elizabeth, right? And I write it down and stuff. And then I'm like watching the film and I'm like, where's Elizabeth? God, did she lose a lot of weight in her face? Because this actress's face is so round compared to the headshot of Rebecca Robin. And like, it took me forever. <laughs> I'm asking Dave, I'm like, what is going on here? And then he's like, no, dude, that's a totally different actress. And I was like, oh, really? Who does she play? And he's like, oh, the queen. And I'm like, what queen? Not only that, but I was like, oh, let me go find Florence Pugh, she's 25 people down the list. I was like, what? She has more screen time than any other side character in this. Mm-hmm. 
So is that just a, a straight up billing thing, even on IMDb or is it just on IMDb? It's weird. I don't know okay. what it is. I, yeah. I think on IMDb, it may even be algorithm driven. Like oh, I have no weird. idea how they, how they do that. And now it's time for the breakdown where we ask ourselves, what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Liam? All right. Um, what was the objective of this film? I think, honestly, I can't get away from it. I think this movie was in some fashion trying to right the historical wrongs of Braveheart in a lot of ways. I think that was the objective. I think Braveheart made Robert the Bruce look interesting, but weak and treacherous. Mm hmm against people that we like. And I think his story obviously went on to become much more than what we see in Braveheart, even though I don't think he fought alongside the English at Falkirk. They never really talk about that in this, but I think that was more just like an, a neat plot device or character development in that movie. Which, as we've learned, is not unrealistic for the Scottish nobility in this era. Just maybe not necessarily him. I can't remember. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I, You know, much like we talked about with uh, the imitation game, I think a, a shittier portrayal existed and they wanted to make one that was more accurate to the facts surrounding him and what he went through and at least more realistic to what the idea of him is in, in history. Was it on target? I think yes. I think yes. I mean, there was still some bullshit in this movie and I know Dan, you wanted to talk about (laughs) some of it. I touched on it a little bit where it's just like, Oh yeah, no, cool. We'll, we'll settle this whole war in a, in a, duel of single combat because that's how we do these things <laughs> right. i'm the king now and i'm gonna go fight a duel with another guy to determine whether who or not, isn't the other king yeah who is not right. the other king like what kind of end of gladiator bullshit is this and the swordsman next to him just kind of goes Psst, what if he kills you <laughs> right right like, like, that's don't a, worry about that's it that's a good question <laughs> i think this one even worse than that I'm stupid and he's just going to ambush me while I'm cooling my heels waiting for the big duel tomorrow. Shit like that pisses me off and I think it makes the character look stupid. If the objective was to kind of do a grittier, more realistic depiction of Robert the Bruce that would give you a better idea of his standing in history, but also kind of be a little like, a little more modern modern and jaded in its depiction. I think that was fairly well done, but it just, some of this movie felt really uneven to me. So I don't know that I liked it that much. I don't know that I would seek this movie out again to watch. Yeah. I think that this is an, this for me anyway, this is another case of Netflix not being ready to make movies in the big leagues. I think they get good directors in, sometimes legendary directors with promises of like creative control and budgets and autonomy and things like that. And if you're Scorsese, then you get to make your four hour epic of 
Robert De Niro aging in weird ways. <laughs> but if your movie was Hell or High Water, which was really, really good, interesting movie. I feel kind of like that film is going to be one that people are going to revisit in like 20 years and be like, man, this one was one of the greats. I don't know if I'm right about that. Mm-hmm. I've already, I've gone back at least twice to watch that one. I'm like on my third view and it's good. But you, like, do you remember how like Shawshank Redemption was good when it came out and everybody was like, oh yeah, that was good. But Forrest Gump. And then like 10, 20 years later, people were like, holy shit. Did we even watch Shawshank? This movie's amazing. Right. This movie's the tits. I feel like Hell or High Water has that, has that kind of possibility to it. But this feels really uneven even to the point where like the titles don't match we made fun of it a little bit where it's like outlaw slash king that is a very modern title for this i agree and they wanted to make this a modern movie like a a very modern today type of film Mm -hmm. uh not your standard historical epic and somebody didn't want that to come to fruition I mean, I did. They did at least hold back on doing any needle drops of modern songs, which would have made this uh, ruined it. Right? No, but I, I, I'm not saying that. Like, I'm saying they didn't go far enough in that direction. Oh, okay. I'm not saying we wanted the needle <laughs> drops of songs, but I'm saying like, Liam's like, I wanted some Led Zeppelin in the middle of this movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to like, let's take this like a Knight's Tale and just like run with it. I want Queen. Okay, but that's I want that's a good movie. No, I enjoy Knight's of. Tale. It's fun. See, I like fun things sometimes, mm. but there's no historical evidence to support this fact. That- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think Netflix fucked this movie up. I think that they had a four hour movie. They were like, eh, maybe not a four hour movie. So then they trimmed it down and then the critics didn't like the two and a half hour version. And so Netflix caved. Mm hmm. And trimmed yeah. it down even more because they're fucking weak sauce. Yeah, you could have just released it in parts, maybe. Or you could have just released it like the two and a half hour long version, like a fucking adult. Right. <laughs> Own it. <laughs> Own it, Netflix. Oh no, the critics didn't like it. Oh, oh my, we got the opening spot at the Toronto Film Festival. We must have done something wrong. Yeah, exactly. Just. If you like the movie, you stick with the movie and you stand by your guns and you do the thing. But like this, this whole thing has wishy-washy written all over it. And I don't think it's the director's fault. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's the writer's fault. And I don't think it's the actor's fault. I would probably blame it on the editor, except I'm pretty sure that there was some like invisible hand of the Netflix Mm -hmm. doing a lot of that editing. Yeah, Netflix was much less, especially right at this time, they were really trying to find, you know, the perfect formula. They wanted to get Oscars, man, and you're not going to fucking do it, Netflix, like not with this shit you're pulling. And it's like, you, if you want that kind of thing, you can't manufacture, I mean, well, Green Book showed us that you absolutely can manufacture that shit and win awards for it for fucked up reasons. But they have since kind of learned a little bit but they should have learned a little bit more from this one. I think Netflix, it's just not, not ready for prime time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're not ready for the big show. They were with Okja. Well, that's Bong Joon-ho. Yes, it is. Dan, what do you, uh, sorry. I, I hope I didn't 
suck all of the oxygen. I'm wide open. <laughs> <laughs> Over here, pass me the ball. No, you're fine. I do this all the fucking time. Honestly, it's like I'm hilarious. sorry. You just run around like Jim Carrey in uh, the in the asylum in Ace Ventura. Over yeah. Here. <laughs> It's just hilarious for me to be in that position where I'm about to call someone long-winded and I'm like, I can't say shit. You cannot. <laughs> I can't you ever. Cannot. I can't ever. Never, ever. But yeah, so Dan, how was this for you? Was it good? In an interesting twist, you basically stole exactly what I was going to say in my breakdown, but you gave me some new things to think about. So I was furiously rewriting it. And so now I'm, I have to kind of wing it, but this is good. Serves you right for writing it in advance. You got <laughs> I don't know, man. Our brains work differently. Shoot from the gut. Hip. Something. Words. So I, I definitely agree that there was, just like us, I'm sure that the director and the five freaking writers that worked on this, that might be something else. That, Ooh, that's also a bad that sign. That might have been a problem, right? I forgot to Ew, mention that yuck. earlier. Definitely part of it was to undo some of the historical and famous, or infamous rather, historical inaccuracies of Braveheart and give us sort of not Braveheart part two in the sense that there's anything similar about the films, but in terms of the plot and the characters to show it, show us what happened afterwards. And there's a little bit of overlap, right? Because William Wallace is drawn and quartered at the end of Braveheart and toward in the first act of this film, but he's ostensibly alive at the beginning and hiding again, there's a deleted scene that would have shown him. So that was definitely part of the objective. And so I'm glad that you brought up the imitation game example because I thought of the same exact thing. And literally, you know, if there's a target that you're shooting arrows at, Braveheart was successful financially, but off the mark when it comes to telling the story in any kind of semblance of historical accuracy. I think here they like hit the target. It wasn't a bullseye, but at least the arrow got closer. And this does very much feel like there is a third film that's going to be produced at some point that I think has the opportunity to really pull all of this together and show us a story, to be honest, that probably shows both William Wallace and Robert the Bruce. And Black Douglas. Just call it Scotland. Yeah, that needs to be like a 10-part miniseries. But that's what I'm saying. Nonetheless, there is a Scottish history story that needs to be told here in a in a more all-inclusive kind of way and you know they missed the mark a little bit here in some ways but i really really appreciated the intent here and i agree with you know it's funny how it doesn't matter what decade you were in you could have this conversation about studios meddling with the artist's final product and forcing cuts and force it literally it goes all the way back to metropolis from 1927, I want to say, very famously was a two and a half hour film at the beginning or two hours and 45 minutes. And they like immediately made them cut an hour out of the film, which has now been, it was lost for 90 years. It's been recovered. If you go by Metropolis now, you can actually watch everything but 10 minutes. So that's really mm, cool. Nice. But the point is studios have been meddling with the final product forever. And well, I don't know that I would watch this version of this film again, because again, accidentally stumbling into the trailer, I was like, whoa, what kind of cool way would that be to tell this film where you just start with, like I said before, Chris Pine sort of 
pondering things at the front of a boat and is so fucking much better is what and the Douglas saying, are you thinking about revenge? And I'm like, Whoa, that's a fucking cool ass opening for a film. I don't mean to, to, to jump in on your, your breakdown, but go ahead. I think the difference between studio meddling in the past and studio meddling from Netflix is that Netflix has no idea what the fuck they're doing. <laughs> and studios sometimes, like at least, I would say 60-40 in favor of the the old Hollywood studios knowing what they were doing. Like saving a film from itself? Right. I yes. can see that. I can see that, yeah. Nonetheless, it's, it's hard to lay the blame on the filmmaker here, I think, because if there was a four-hour version and then a two-and-a-half-hour version, one of them even included a scene of this character that we're kind of asking for, which is William Wallace. I'm like, okay, so there's definitely a different film that could be recut here that might be more successful. So I think you got to throw that out there. I think for the most part, this was on target in terms of fixing a lot of the historical inaccuracies that were out there from Braveheart and telling us a more historically true story. I didn't get a chance to mention it in the episode, but I do have to say that uh, the final battle is probably the place where I see the biggest historical inaccuracy that kind of made me go, "Ah, come on, really? Like you didn't have to do that. And uh, the main issue is that Edward II was, uh, first of all, not king yet. I believe Edward I died, I don't know, I can't remember if it was a couple of months after that battle, but I don't think he was, Edward II was not actually king. He wasn't there at all at this battle. So not only is his presence as the main antagonist not accurate, but then the ridiculously unrealistic way in which he is beaten and on the ground. And, you know, the actor did a fine job portraying it. He's sniveling and crying out for help. And like, you're like, aha, the bad guy's finally down on his knees in the mud. Right. And his face is all bloody, but there is just no chance in hell, especially if he was already King, but even as the Prince of Wales, that the Scots would not have taken, they would have taken him alive if they could have. Right. And then held him for ransom. They could have ended the war right there. I mean, they honestly, might have had the oh, leverage. Yeah. I mean, if the king was old and dying, which Longshanks was at the time, they had enough leverage that they might have gotten the English to leave Scotland and be like, we want independence or we're killing this motherfucker. Now, who knows? A historian could step in and correct me. Obviously, that's just my layman's interpretation. Needless to say, though, that what they show happening fictionally in the film is very unrealistic. I had the same thought while I was watching that. I was like, yeah. you're letting this motherfucker go. There's no right? way. I mean, nope. that's not how you do. It's not how you do. You could even show someone killing him in a moment where he's unrestrained and someone like gets the, you know, their, their passion gets the best of him and they kill him. And then you have a scene where the other characters are going, no, what the, what are you doing? Why did you kill? Him? Like that would have even been more believable than, than letting him go. But that's besides the point. I don't know, man. Like, that's one thing that's hard not to lay at the feet of the filmmakers because that was obviously an intended part. Oh, that one I can. Yes, yeah. that that ending yeah. I can lay on the filmmakers. Not my favorite. And honestly, like, I'm a little mad at everybody who was there that day that they shot that, that nobody was like, guys, this sucks. Like, why are mm-hmm. we doing it like this? This doesn't make sense. There's just like, there's plenty of real antagonists here including like half of the fucking scottish nobles like you don't have to make up a scene with a a fictional or or fictionalized antagonist to like make the film end well i also wanted to make a quick mention that this was all filmed in scotland and not just filmed in scotland if you look at the list there's like 20 locations in scotland 
And I'm not going to read them all off here because you can do that for yourselves. But I will mention the two most noteworthy to me, one of which was uh, the historical town of Berwick-upon-Tweed. I'm assuming that's a river, which was the first town in England which changed hands between Scotland and England over 12 times, one of which was when Robert the Bruce was alive. So that particular location had a lot of historical significance to the film. And the other one is, oh boy, Dunfermline Abbey. I'm just going to stick with that, but I could be off, uh, which is actually the final resting place of King Robert the Bruce. So these are some real important historical locations, especially to Scottish people. And that's pretty cool, in my opinion, that they went through the trouble of doing all that instead of just filming in Ireland like Braveheart did. So yes, I actually did like this movie and I went into it thinking that I wasn't going to like it. And maybe some of that is a little bit of context for us that I really did not like the last three or four films that we've done because they felt like homework and it was a slog. And as much as this one was maybe a little too short for its own good, I really appreciated what they were doing. And especially when comparing it to Braveheart in terms of historical accuracy, subtlety, just all kinds of things. I mean, I can sit down in the right mood and still watch Braveheart today and enjoy it for what it is. But I think that this is a better film, especially if you cut it a bit differently, because there's obviously plenty of material to work with. So I'm glad that we picked this one. And I am very curious, just like I'm curious to see what follows up the imitation game. I'm very curious to see what follows up Outlaw King in terms of this story. Katie? Hmm. Well, I, I kind of agree with most of what you guys have said, I think. So I'm going to go back to... I tried to write down before we started talking about our objectives as to what mine were, because I knew I was going to go last. So I think my final thoughts on this was uh, when I finished watching it was that this was all about telling a compelling story about a semi-famous worldwide and obviously very influential historical figure for the UK, because this director is indeed from the UK, and... It wanted to tell it as accurately as possible, which I definitely agree is a response to Braveheart. <laughs> there's a lot of that going on in this. I think there's this ploy to be, for lack of a better word, artsy. And that's why we see a lot of those cinematography shots that we talked about. That's why they kind of try to walk this line of realism. And was it on target? I think they did that really well. Honestly, I think they made a fairly accurate, except for the end. We all agree the end is uh, not good in regards to historical accuracy. It's a satisfying ending, right? but it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. For those of you who know anything at all about how medieval times worked, and it's just, no, <laughs> it's not a good choice. They should have made a different choice with the ending. But I think otherwise, it really does try to tell kind of a well-rounded, like it gives Florence Pugh's character, Elizabeth, a lot more screen time than the vast majority of these kinds of movies ever do. She is a fully formed character with thoughts and opinions. She takes action, you know, whereas in Braveheart, for instance, you know, wife gets raped and dies. That's her lot in life, you know, as is so often in medieval stories. We don't get to see that, not in the least because, you know, medieval women's stories are hard to come by. I liked the slower pace that this has, but I do think that it's going to be a huge turnoff for some people because it can at times feel plodding. 
But with the two-hour runtime, I was like, yeah, I'm willing to give it a little time to see where it goes. And I ended up enjoying the time I spent with it. I also don't know if I would watch it again. But that brings me to, did I like it? Yes, I liked it. If somebody wanted to, you know, see a story of Robert the Bruce, I'd recommend this. You want to see a good Chris Pine, early Florence Pugh movie? I'd recommend this. You know, it's not bad. It's not a fucking masterpiece. But I think it does David McKenzie credit. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's it's certainly contributes to his acclaim rather than detracts from it. And like you said, Dan, I'm very interested to see the stories that come after this, because mm-hmm. I would love to see more of this history and a more well-rounded version of this history where we get like the much smaller players in this that we think of historically, like Robert the Bruce's brother, who was king of Ireland for a while, you know, but not well remembered in comparison. There's so much going on here that they could have talked about that I'm okay with what they chose to omit and what they chose to keep in, just not with that ending. See, and this is going to be a good plug for our Patreon. Once we hit maybe, say, like 10,000 patrons and we have enough income, then we can start Danger Close Productions and we're going to produce the sequel to the imitation (laughs) or sorry, the remake of the imitation game. And then we'll remake this story and we're just going to kill it. So you guys, uh, if you guys want to participate in future films being made by three people who have never made a goddamn film. Hey, I was big into Uh making stop motion Uh animation films when I was a child. I have several (laughs) Lego movies that are very short and badly made. And Liam has definitely directed plays as recently as last week. So yeah, man, not completely without. And and I just, yeah, love to talk a lot. Anyways, you can go (laughs) to www.dangerclosepod.com forward slash support. If you do want to participate in that for four bucks a month, You can get our war-adjacent and war-related films like science fiction, comedy, etc. We got 13 in the bank now, and we put out a fresh one every month. Liam. Yes. What regular Danger Close film are we going to cover next? We are going back to uh, actually some familiar ground. Oh, and this is our our listener poll winner, right? Yes. (laughs) The answer is yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it is. No, we're going back to some familiar ground uh, to World War Two. This is the winner of our audience poll. So if you are not if you're not on our Facebook group, you don't get to vote in the audience poll. So you should probably come over to the Facebook group and vote in the audience poll. So you can have some say. And, you know, every so often we uh, we like to do what the people ask. So 1977's A Bridge Too Far was the winner. And uh, it's another another World War II epic with the uh, the who's who among British actors and some German actors. So I'm going to be really interested to see how this compares to The Longest Day. Uh, also, isn't Gene Hackman in this one? Yeah. And, and <laughs> Gene Hackman. Saying, and Gene Hackman? Yeah. It's like Sean Connery, Michael Caine, Laurence Olivier, Gene Hackman. Oh, damn. Maximilian Schell. My guy Maximilian Schell is in it. There's some bigs in this one. Mm-hmm. And also Jeremy Kemp is in it, who was also last time we saw him was in the Blue Max. He played the ugly flyer. Oh, right. oh, I know who you're talking about. The ugly yet dashing one. The guy with the scar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, in a game that we may not have played before, let's see if the three of us can guess who's seen this one. Do you guys think I've seen this or not? 
No. Yes. Ooh, I have not seen this one. Ooh. This will be my first time. Okay. How about Liam? What do we think? Yes. I'm going to go yes. No. Oh, <sighs> dang. Okay. And lastly, Katie. Katie has not seen it. I'm going to go. Let's see. Man, she Katie's tough with old war movies because I know she's seen a lot of them with her dad. This sounds like something your dad. I'm going to go yes. Nope. Damn. None of us have seen this one. Okay. This will be interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, join us in a couple of weeks. We drop every other Friday and you can find that episode and we will talk to you guys then. Goodbye. Bye. The return of Morty. It's been a it's been a minute since we heard Morty. It has been. I'm Morty. Morty. (laughs) Sitting on the stairs going. No, no Morty. (laughs) Where are they? Death. Morty, the unofficial mascot of the pod.